how any secret shapes us is it kind of keeps you from being known, right? Yeah. It prevents you from having truly intimate relationships because, of course, you're not telling anyone the whole truth. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Somehow, we all want to be the favorite child, the one the parent can count on. But what about when that ties you to secrets, to generational pain? What about when that is a trap? And how do you ultimately escape? Adrienne Berdour, in her new memoir, Wild Game, My Mother and Lover and Me, explores these questions, creating a vivid, riveting story of love and devotion, a daughter living inside her mother's dream, yet how Adrienne finds a way to separate her own needs and desires from her wily, manipulative mother brings us an understanding of both forgiveness and redemption. Adrian brings her experience as co-founder of the award-winning magazine Zoetrope, All Story, as a judge for National Book Awards, and a director of Aspen Words to bring us a memoir you won't soon forget. But it begins with a secret on an evening when you were 14. So what happened, Adrian? Um, thank you for having me. Uh, so this this pivotal moment of my life took place in 1980, and as you said, I was 14 years old. We were on uh, Cape Cod in our summer house, and it was late. It was past midnight, and I was asleep in my bed when I heard my mother enter the room and try to wake me up. And she was waking me up to tell me a very big secret, which was that my stepfather's best friend, who was a house guest along with his wife, had just kissed her. And what I didn't know in that moment was that this affair, this love affair, would go on for the next dozen years. It was just absolutely huge and consuming. But what I did know, even in real time, was that... My life had a before and after. Mm -hmm. So I had gone to bed as my mother's daughter, and I'd woken up as Malabar's confidant and best friend and sort of co-conspirator in this affair. Yeah. So I can read a few pages from that night? That'd be great. Okay. Wake up, Rennie. I felt a hand on my shoulder and pulled the sheet over my head. Rennie, please. Even before I turned and saw her face, I could hear a peculiar quaver in my mother's whisper and smell the remnants of the Pinot Noir. Her voice sounded hesitant and desperate. The mattress sank where she lowered herself beside me, and my, and my body stiffened against the depression. I kept my eyes shut and steadied my exhalations. Rennie! The whisper, more urgent now, still held an unfamiliar tremor. She pulled the sheet down. Please, wake up. At this, I opened my eyes. Malabar was in her nightgown, her hair must. I sat up. Mom, what's wrong? Is everything okay? Ben Souther just kissed me. I took in this information, 
tried to make sense of it, couldn't. I rubbed my eyes. My mother was still there beside me. Ben kissed me, my mother repeated. A noun, a verb, an object. Such a simple sentence, really, and yet I couldn't comprehend it. Why would Ben Souther kiss my mother? It wasn't that I was naive. I knew that people kissed people they weren't supposed to. My parents had not shielded me from stories of both of their transgressions during their marriage, and in this way, I knew more about infidelity than most children. I was four when my parents broke up, six when my father remarried, seven when that new marriage started to fall apart, and eight when my mother was finally able to wed Charles, who'd been separated but still married to his first wife when they met. Ben was married, too, of course, to Lily. The Southers had been married for 35 years. Mom and Charles, Ben and Lily. The four of them had been couple friends as long as my mother and stepfather had known each other, about a decade now. What do you mean Ben kissed you? Suddenly, I was fully awake. I pictured her slapping him in response. That was something my mother might do. What happened? We took a walk after dinner, just the two of us, and he pulled me into him, like this. My mother crossed her arms around herself, simultaneously demonstrating Ben's caress and embracing its memory. Then she collapsed the rest of the way down onto the bed, smiling and stretched out alongside me. Apparently, there had been no slap. So, Adrian, your 14-year-old self is confronted both with your mother trusting you with this information. I think the next morning, you, you talk about the next morning and you say, buoyed by the joy in my mother's voice and still drunk on the intimacy of our exchange. What do you think you thought about her and Ben? I mean, how, how would a 14-year-old even process that? Well, it's funny because, of course, in hindsight, you know, obviously I'm very clear on what a burden it was, yeah. how negatively it affected my life. But the truth is, at 14, it was nothing cool. nothing but thrilling, right? Yeah. So most children, and I was no exception, you want to feel your mother's love. Like, pick me, pick me. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I just felt like I was in the high beams of her affection. She she was showering me with her need and her involvement. It was completely thrilling to be part of this. This was very grown-up stuff. I felt important. Mm -hmm. I think it's significant that it was my stepfather and not my father. I don't think that would have gone Played the same well. way. Um, but no, I was just, I was delighted that she was finally happy. She'd been unhappy for so long. I was delighted to be her confidant. It was all very fun until, of course, it, it became wasn't. less fun. <laughs> now, your mother, her name is Malabar, mm -hmm. and her she's a bigger-than-life creature. Yes. What did you think of her at that moment, the, the minute before she came in to see you? How would you have described her? Um, I don't know that I would have described her very differently before or after. I mean, I was— um, in her thrall, she was charismatic. She was beautiful. She was astonishing in the kitchen. So she'd studied at Le Cordon Bleu, and she worked at these uh, the test kitchen in Time and Life, and she wrote all these cookbooks. So there were a lot of parties, and she always put on these lavish feasts. And she just—she tried to have 
a great life and a great time, and she was a hostess, and um, she was fun. I mean, I you know, her dubious maternal instincts aside, we actually had a lot of fun together. Yeah, I mean, the the idea, I think on the night that you're talking about, Ben brought... Pigeon. Pigeon. Squab, and she knew. He was so surprised because he just delivered these to her, and my mother knew just and what to do And then magically she creates an incredible dish. Yeah, she did that every day. And would you have thought, your mother certainly seemed festive, charming, and all of that. And did she feel warm and caring as a mother, or was that not part of... I mean, this is where it's complicated, because she did feel that way. She was very affectionate. She Mm -hmm. was very warm. I think... um, You know, at some point in her life, her focus became more on herself than on her children. But certainly, my early memories of her were a very attentive mother. Yeah. Which I I know seems surprising. No, it doesn't. It's the truth. You know, I think, I think, um, you know, the term I used of wily manipulator that your mom was also means that they are appealing. Yeah. Right? They're people you want to be with. Yeah. Want to be in their orbit. Right. So as time goes on in your teenage years, how do you manage keeping this secret? And what does this secret begin to do to shape you? Well, you know, in the early years, I mean, how any any secret shapes us is it kind of keeps you from being known, right? It prevents you from having truly intimate relationships because, of course, you're not telling anyone the whole truth. So my friends wouldn't necessarily know why I was the person who left the party early because it was my job to go home at the end of these test dinners that they had, my parents had with the Southers, and I was the teenage chaperone who would, you know, very innocently suggest we go out on a walk, and neither of the spouses would join because they were both in ill health. And you know, off we would go sort of merrily on the way. And so, you know, that being the foil, me being the foil. Exactly. So, you know, it started there. Um, I was sort of all in. Uh, Things became more complicated for me when uh, my stepfather died, which happened, um, you know, so it had been going on for some time, but it happened when I was in college. And that was the first time I really, I'm not even sure I understood it as guilt at the time, but I just, I felt terrible. Um, Obviously, there was the loss of him and his death, and he was a very kind person in my life. But, you know, that was one major moment. And, you know, just sort of each stage, different things folded into it, and it became more and more complicated because, of course, it kept affecting more parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple weeks ago, I was on Cape Cod, where much of this book takes place, but we have these invasive vines there, and I was pulling them back, and just, you know, one's growing up the porch, and one's down in the basement, and all this. And the surprise to me was all of these vines went back to one root, and that's how it felt in my childhood. Wow. It just sort of like, it could it could impact me in all different parts of my life, but it was always that central. This was this was the moment. This this situation, all the repercussions, where I felt like almost everything went back to for me. 
And and you ultimately became a betrayer in, in to your to your uh, to Charles to your brother. You know, in the sense that your mother forced you to also be the one that was then lying. Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, that's what I meant about, you know, you're not able to be known. You're not able to have authentic relationships because, in fact, you're withholding and you're, you are lying. So, absolutely, I was part of this betrayal and I, I hurt people that I care deeply about. And, and what were the beginning pieces of you understanding sort of the deal that you had made that— It really took place over a long period of time. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I think the the one of the real moments when I started to understand was I sank into an incredible depression Mm. in my 20s. And, you know, I didn't I'd never been depressed before. I actually haven't had a depression since. But it was just this sudden collision of emotion and. I'd never experienced anything like it. And I went into therapy and, you know, just was trying to mine what was happening to me. And at the same time, I really had started to become a reader thanks to my my father's third wife who owned an independent bookstore. Her name was Margot, And she kept handing me these novels. And through all of a sudden becoming a voracious reader, I remember um, just this feeling of being, it's such an reading is such an empathetic act because you're putting yourself in someone else's predicament and and seeing how all these characters who had very complicated lives as a rule were making sense of them for themselves mm-hmm. um so it was it was when that started to happen when i realized how far in over my head i'd gotten how i'd really been more interested in my mother's life than my own and i'd been doing things to please her rather than to please myself. Um, I'd taken some very wrong turns. And I I loved Margot in the book, (laughs) even aside from the fact that she was another independent bookseller. But so do you think she was choosing books with any depth of understanding of what you were dealing with or any observations about your mother or just thinking, reading of any smart books would could right. present a path out. It's a fascinating question and I haven't thought about that. I think initially as any fine independent <laughs> bookstore <laughs> owner, she was pressing great books into my hands just like, you know, Jim Harrison, Barbara Kingsolver, Anne Hoffman, Zora Neale Hurston, um Marguerite Duras, I just remember these books just coming in and coming in and coming in. I imagine over time, as we became closer and she became more intimate with my situation and understanding more of what I was going through, they probably became more specific and more Mm -hmm. pointed, but I actually have never thought about that. And now I'm very curious to go back and see if there was some trajectory. Yeah. If she unconsciously or consciously new. Right. You know, as I read the book, and it's something that we we all think about, and that is the permutations of who our parents are, who their parents were, you know, this kind of thread of things that happened. And And the object that represents that 
for me, as I was reading the book, was a necklace Mm -hmm. that was given to your grandmother Mm -hmm. and that your mother described to you as the circumstances around that necklace. So let's start with that story. Right. Well, I mean, I think you bring up a great point because I I don't think anyone can argue that the story of all of our lives starts before we're born, mm. right? Um, you know, it just doesn't start <laughs> on our birthday. We're, we don't all literally come from the womb yeah. all over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the story of this necklace, and I'll also just add that I think— In writing this book, one of the most extraordinary and unexpected things that happened was, of course, I had to do a deep dive into my mother's history and her childhood Mm -hmm. and her past. And I will say that I think, um, despite our very—we went through many rough patches and periods of estrangement—I think um, trying to understand her, trying to really get to know her— is such a path um, to forgiveness because the truth is I don't think there's anyone you can't forgive once you know their story. Mm-hmm. But to get to the necklace. So the necklace was my mother. Um, my mother was born in 1931 and had this very complicated uh, family and parents. So she was an only child of two very sort of fabulous parents. Her father lived in India. Her mother was with her in New York. She was my mother. She's named Malabar because she was actually born in India. Um, But she didn't know her father because at the time you'd spend three years being stationed somewhere and come home for three months. And by the time he had come home for the first time when she was around three, they were, the marriage was disintegrating. They were getting divorced. They later got married again, and when my grandfather proposed to my grandmother for that second time, my mother was a girl of about eight or nine years old, and she witnessed this fantastic proposal, which was done in public at a dinner party, and he presented her with this spectacular necklace, this necklace that my grandmother had fallen in love with in India that was just you know, festooned with big diamonds and rubies and emeralds. It's this collar. It's just gorgeous. And um, cut to, you know, that marriage also didn't work. And my my grandfather had a secret other family and all sorts of stuff. But the necklace had captured my mother's imagination as this symbol of love. Um, but my my mother... I think as an only child, you know, her possessions were very important to her, and she really conflated love and money and love and possessions. So at some point, my grandmother gave it to her as a college graduation present in this very lovely way. And for my entire childhood, my mother would promise it to me, but was unable to give it to me. It just was so hard for her to part with this thing. And she you know, it had taken on some mythic proportion mm-hmm. to her. She really truly believed it was worth millions. She truly believed it was, I mean, she actually said, and she was an art historian at some point in her life, she thought it was impossible to appraise it. That's how valuable it was. And I was kind of like, you know, mom. Really? <laughs> really, that isn't how that works. Um, so in any case, um, she she'd long promised it to me on my wedding day, and yet even that day, she couldn't part with it, and she ended up wearing it um, on my wedding day. I found that scene cruel. 
You know, you're not the first person to say that. It's funny. At that moment in my life, and I think it was still because I was so tied to her psychically, and this was at a moment when she and Ben had split up because his wife had found out about the affair, and all of a sudden I realized, like, oh, this is the last, this is her only moment to see him. It just seems so much more important that she have this necklace than I did. So Because you were still so buying was, into her story. I was still more invested in her love story than mine. Yeah, period. because reading it, um, it, you know, so your, your mother is at your apartment here in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And has the necklace. No, we were on Cape Cod when we had that moment with the necklace, which was right before the wedding. It was in 1990. It was, you know, just a month or two before the wedding. And, um... And the the apartment scene in New York comes many years later after that marriage hasn't worked for me. But she... No, this was right before my wedding. Yeah, and I I thought... Because there was something I remember about the scene. Tell me if I'm not remembering it right, where it seemed like she was going to give it to you. Well, that was my assumption. So I thought I had come back from California to visit her. And then, like, grabs it back. It it wasn't quite like that. But I had come. She had told me she, you know, wanted me to wear the necklace on my wedding day. I'd come back in in the interim she and Ben had had this, you know, terrible breakup because his wife had found out. And um, I thought I was going up to her bedroom to show her my wedding gown. And I just had pictures of it with me because it was in California. And when I got to the bedroom, there the necklace was opened on her bed. And I hadn't seen it in years. And it was just, you know, sparkling Sparkling. and beautiful. And then my mother proceeded to show me this bolt of fabric and describe the dress that she was going to be wearing to the wedding. Mm. And it was going to be the first time that she saw Ben since they'd broken up. And she was just determined to be the most magnificent woman there. And then she picked up the necklace and she said, and this will be the piece de resistance. And, you know, yes, like in hindsight, I'm sure if it wasn't my own life, I would have the same reaction that you're having. At the time, it just made so much sense. I was like, oh, of course, yeah, of course. she needs She's it. She needs back. it. I, you, you know, know, like this is what, what we've spent 10 do? years, you know, <laughs> fighting for. So it made it, you know, somehow that wasn't one of the ones that I felt hurt by. Yeah. And, Which one was? Well, the scene that you actually referenced in New York, um, and that was four years later um, when I had left my husband and my career and California and moved back to New York. Um, I'd I'd been in therapy. I'd, I'd really decided to pursue a life in literature. And I was starting all over just, you know, when I was living in a studio apartment above Curry in a hurry, like it was it was not glamorous. And my mother had come by to see me and really let her disdain of my decisions mm. be known. And she and didn't like the space. She didn't like the space, but she also just thought I was being foolish um, and that I'd you know, what was this going into going into books? Like, how was I going to support myself? And she was going to she was basically letting me know, um, you know, don't think that I'm going to be your backup plan here. Yeah. And that was hard. And then you asked her to leave. I did ask her to leave. I did ask her to leave. Um, And she did. And we had a long period of estrangement after that, which was hard for both of us. One of the things I think about 
and as you get older, I think you run into more circumstances about you have people that are important in your life who's more important than a parent. And in your life, she was certainly a large figure. And even with an understanding of how they might have become who they are. Mm -hmm. So that gives you the empathy right, to begin a kind of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. But how do you grapple with the observation that they may or may not be taking responsibility for their behavior? I, I, I think this question of being capable of forgiving right with the responsibility of the forgivee is a funny intersection no it is a very funny intersection and you're right about that um but what i will say about forgiving is that before i had been through this process i think i thought it was sort of this magnanimous thing that you might do for someone else in fact, forgiveness is very um, For self-empowering. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I did not forgive my mother to put a blanket over these transgressions and pretend they didn't happen. In some ways, like, you know, this whole book has underlined it. But I did it to let go. I did it so I could— it's corrosive to it's you. corrosive to me, and so I could move on. I also very truly believe, you know, I've written this memoir that is about this affair and this— part of our life. So you're seeing a slim version. And it's not that, you know, Malabar was otherwise entirely sweet and rosy and lovely. I mean, she was a tough cookie. Um, but she did have, you know, it's cliche, we're all better than our worst moments. Mm -hmm. She did have some very good moments. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know, you know, she's my mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so the question that um, comes to mind is, at some point, you made the decision to tell this story. Yes. That must have been a very difficult, arduous decision. Well, I think I'd actually been noodling around in it practically since it happened. You know, I mean, I was writing in journals. I was exploring it. When I went into that depression, I really, you know, it was the focus point of my life for five years or so to sort of figure out how to get out of that depression, to figure out what had happened to me. And then, you know, I entered this literary world. So, of course, I was thinking about how to portray it. Um, you know, for a long time, I dealt with it in humor, which I think is a way people deal with deal things with that it. are too painful to actually look at head on. And then, honestly, it you know, the game changer was starting a family of my own. And I think that was the moment that I thought, you've still got work to do. You're not there yet. And, you know, I think... For so long, we can, you know, put the blinders on and march forward and try not to look at the past. But the past is always with it. Mm -hmm. You know, the past is prologue. It's always going to be there. It doesn't mean you can't move on. But I think the only way for me to have moved on well or to really reckon with this, because I didn't want to pass on this legacy of duplicity and secrets to the next generation, I was determined not to, was just to fully face it and to sit with it and to look at it and to own my own guilt and shame about it and and then to move on. What's What did you worry about and what's been the reaction of people in the book? 
that you talk about in the book. You know, one particular worry. Um, I will say, you know, my mother, my father, my brother, you know, they'd all lived this story. They all knew a lot about this story. So I wasn't, um, you know, as worried about that. I think in some ways, you know, I thought a lot about my step-siblings. So I have two left from my mother's first marriage and two from my mother's second marriage. And, you know, just as people who may not want to relive all this. And of course, I use pseudonyms for everyone other than my parents and me. But the truth is, in this age of Google, like anyone can figure it out in in short order. So um, no one's confronted you. No, everyone's been very supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my uh, even though I have a complicated relationship with my mom, as I said, we have an intense bond. And when I told her I was really determined to do this around four years, four or five years ago, um, you know, she understood that I needed to, and she was supportive. She was a big chronicler of her own life. She has myriad scrapbooks and photo albums and recipe books, and she really gave me access to them. Um, She's very ill today, so this is about the last thing we talk about together. Mm. Um, I was going to say, where is she living now, and what is she doing? She's on Cape Cod, and she's gravely ill. Mm. Does that make it easier for you to be with her that you've now processed all of that? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's not easy to see someone you love as sick as I am seeing her right now. Um, So it's an impossible question because it's the only, you know, the only thing I know. Yeah. One One of the tricky things, I think, for all of us when you come from generations of complications, Mm -hmm. of behavior that from a distance looks um, problematic, if not alarming. Right. And and how do you emerge from that? And one of the uh, pieces that, uh, so you are uh, giving birth. Um, Maybe it was the anesthesia. But when I first saw my mother as I lay there fresh and raw from having been carved open to bring her granddaughter into the world, the past ran me down. I had a vision like the kind people describe when they're near death. For one brief second, it was as if a curtain had been lifted. I saw a long line of people, faceless in the distance, familiar as they got closer. My great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents— I was at the front of this row of human dominoes, my infant in my arms, and as my forefathers and mothers toppled behind me, they pushed the next generation into motion. There was no escape. Their collective weight would crush me and my baby. What was that the beginning of? I think that was the beginning of my realization that I still had work to do, that I thought that this thing that I thought I had a handle on, I still had much more work to do. I mean, children require revelation, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden— That's a great term. In, in one moment, your relationship with your past and future is completely upended. Mm. I mean, I remember that so well, giving birth, just being like, yeah. oh, wow, <laughs> you know, this is going to happen. And I just, um, I didn't want this cycle 
to continue. I just that was that was all I could think about was wanting to figure out a way to make sure I didn't pass this to the next generation. And how'd you go about making sure that happened? I think when you ignore a story or deny a story, it actually has more and more power Mm -hmm. over you. And I think when you turn towards it and own it, um, you're able to move out a bit. And honestly, you know, I I don't want to say like, ah, I'm done. I don't think there are these like finish lines. I don't think we're ever done. Uh, We're never done. And so... I know for a fact that this episode in my life, even though I do feel like I've moved on from it, and I do feel very certain that my children are not exposed to secrets and duplicity, certainly within our family. Um, the world might have something the world, else. Yeah, there's some other problems that. going on. But what I what I will say is that my childhood has had a very long arm into my future. So even though I feel like I've reckoned with these things, I still see the lens. I still see through a lens that is not necessarily as trusting as other people. And there's this wonderful, I mean, I think it's a wonderful example at the end of the book, which is a little bit sad. It was when my father-in-law died. Um, my My husband comes from this wonderful family, big family. He's one of six. They're 15 grandchildren. We all descended. Sort of the opposite The absolute opposite. We all descended on my mother-in-law's house. And at some point in time, one of the adult grandchildren discovered a locked stainless steel box in the basement. And I mean, all I felt was panic. I was Mm -hmm. just like, I had a hard time breathing. Uh And meanwhile, Everyone in their family was grinning ear to ear, thinking like, oh, what's, what's, what you know, the, I know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, are you people crazy? And I'm looking at my husband trying to be like, get these children out of the room. Take this away from your mother-in-law. They start to pry it open and out pop all these love letters that my father-in-law had saved mm. of my mother-in-law's for 60 years. This was during their courtship. And that was so eye-opening because all I thought is like, this is when this poor family that is so wonderful discovers the illegitimate half-sibling, the secret affair, the unsavory fetish, whatever it is. Yeah. And, you know, that's who I am. I mean, I, I'm I'm trying all the time. And your not husband to. wasn't thinking that. Oh, no. my Well, you know, in that way that you can kind of get someone alarmed because he was like, well, what? And he's well, like, may, no, 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 Maybe I should be thinking but, about Yeah, that. no. But, and he's been around my family enough to understand that this is real to me. But afterwards, he just looked at me like, Rennie. <laughs> yeah. Has your, what's the relationship between your children and your mom? They have a really nice relationship. My daughter especially has had a close relationship um, with her grandmother. They love to cook together, and they enjoyed each other a lot. My my mom's sick enough now that it's not really yeah. so much a relationship anymore. But my, my daughter still – both my children still go over and see her regularly. Yeah, you know, I think about when um, there were a number of people who uh, knew my dad – Later, mm-hmm. like, you know, didn't we? I didn't know these friends as kids, and they would observe my father with uh, my son, and they go, "Oh God, Rox, no wonder 
you know, you 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 look at life so positively. What an incredible man your father is. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that man was not my father. He's yeah. Edward's grandfather. Right. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> no, and that's the other thing I'll say is my mother's not the person she was 30 Either. years ago yeah. at all. And not just because of her current illness, but, I mean, she's been just a much sweeter person, more full of gratitude. Um you know, we all change. So, so one of the um, passages in the book that you um, have is, I knew only what pleased my mother. I didn't have a moral compass. It would be years before I understood the forces that shaped who she was and who I became and recognized the hurt that we had both caused. Is that an element of of having to figure what is morally right, something that you had to deal with? Or did that get fixed just by exposing the secret? No, I think, I mean, I think that is also a work in progress because, you know, we only get one set of parents. And the shocking part of all of this is it seemed normal to me. I mean, I wasn't going, oh, my God, what yeah. a crazy, nutty thing I'm doing now. It was like I just assumed this was your house. This was the grown-up world. People were having affairs. You know, I remember when my friend said her parents were fighting. I was like, oh, you know, one of them's of having an affair. Like, that was the only conclusion <laughs> right. I could draw. But I do feel like in the same way that I didn't get this, my mother certainly didn't get this. And this, are, for instance, things I do differently with my own children. So we're all, you know, born into this world with gifts and flaws. Like, no one's all good and no one's all bad. And I think, you know, key is is knowing yourself, right? Yeah. So you, as a parent, what you're supposed to do is help your child to be aware of their gifts and flaws and and show them how to manage it and show them what's right and wrong. And that simply wasn't really done for me as a child by my mother. And certainly my mother didn't have anyone helping her with those things. Yeah. And when she, let's go back to that night. Mm-hmm. How do you think your mother was thinking about sharing that secret? Do you think she you were there and she had to share it with someone? Did she... Can you imagine that she was even thinking about you or was it about what do you think motivated her to go in and tell you that story? Right. Well, of course, I will never know for sure. Um, I think I understood my mother uh, through researching this book as a much, much lonelier person Mm. than I previously understood her to be. I don't think she had... um, truly close friendships. Um, And I think, you know, she saw in me someone very devoted to her who would do it. I I think it was a really impulsive decision. I'm sure she'd had a lot to drink that night. Um, I think she did it. And then you couldn't undo the move. Um, I don't know. Hence the before and after. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's the same as, you know, there are all sorts of before and afters. You discover a lump or, you know, the car crash or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There are these moments where your life is never quite the same. And certainly that is of any childhood moment in my life. That's the one that I just, it's, it everything shifted, the ground shifted. Mm. Because you could also imagine a scenario where the next day when she hadn't been drinking and the sun was out, that she would, 
not take it back, but end your involvement in it. And that has been the hardest part of it because I, mm-hmm. you know, especially you sort of get that moment of her doing it that her... night. You, you, you. When I read that story, when I read that passage, I sort of got like she had been drinking. She wanted to share her excitement with someone. You know, there's a lot of a lot of ways no. you could understand that moment. And there were many times, like many, many times along the way, where I feel like it would have been proper to say, or to think at least, are you sure you're doing this for the right reason? Are you sure you're marrying this person for the right reason? Are you sure you're going? And that is probably the hardest thing to think about is that later when she'd had time to reflect on all of it, she never really... Um, put me first. Rolled that back. Yeah. And in fact, there's a passage in the book that was very striking in that way, that once she felt like she and Ben could be together, you say that there was a sense that she didn't need you anymore. Yeah. I mean, I definitely felt that. And I had... I was newly separated. I was changing careers. I moved. I mean, I just got the sense that, you know, she was really on the happily ever after place and just did not want to deal with, um, you know, my difficult time right then. Yeah. It was messier than she wanted to get her hands in. Yeah. Adrian, what did you hope for the book? What, What do you hope a reader would take away from having read your story? Well, I feel like for any any reader who's had a complicated childhood... I'd like to know who has it. Or maybe your my husband. husband. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. Like, they, everything is joyful over there. Um, I think anyone who's ever asked themselves, you know, am I destined to become my mother? Which mm-hmm. I think a lot of us ask ourselves... I think there's just the knowledge that you do have the power Mm -hmm. to change things. It's hard work. I mean, I'm not saying this just happened. It took a lot of commitment and desire to do things differently and and shape my life differently. But I I definitely think there's a brighter future ahead. Mm. Uh, The takeaway that I had was that. I mean, I always think writers who are brave enough to write memoirs like this are giving permission to other people Mm -hmm. to take the steps that they've taken or the courage to take a step they've been reluctant to take. Right. And I, I I think you exactly accomplish that. You know, you you read it and you're rooting for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um to figure it out. Yeah. And without killing everything that was good. Right. Right. Right? I mean, I liked Malabar. I was a little shocked by her. Oh, me too. <laughs> but I, I liked her. You know, there's this wonderful line that helped me so much in writing the book that was in Vivian Gornick's um brilliant book on narrative nonfiction, The Situation and the Story. Have you read that? I've not. Um, well, the line was... I've read other things yeah, of hers. I love her. so great. 
the line was, uh, and I might botch it a little bit, but it was, in order for the drama to deepen, you must see the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent. Tape that one to my computer screen. And that's what I really tried to do because what was I getting out of it? Because there was some time, I mean, obviously, it's sort of very clear in the beginning, but there were these moments where I should have been pivoting away from this that I leaned in. And I really wanted to explore why I was doing that and, and you know, just what that meant. Well, it's not hard to imagine, Adrian, that, I mean, we've read a million stories that the profound need for love and approval from a parent mm-hmm. is very powerful. Yeah, for sure. And she was giving that to you. She was giving you the opportunity to have that in spades. Yep. How could you resist that? Uh, apparently I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or how could one resist right, that? Right. It's just, it's what you want. Yeah. I'm, I'm it. Yeah. So I really want to thank you for taking the time um, to talk with us. I, I'm wishing you all success uh, for the book. I think that lots of people will, um, it will give them pause and give them aha moments. So thank you so much. Thanks and how for lucky me. for your kids. Yeah. Right. That you, you broke that thread. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.